Um, This morning we come to the fourth Sunday in Lent. We are working through our Lent series of Leaning into Lent. And I was just going to remind everybody where we're at in this process of Lent. As we continue into Lent, it's a time where we take 40 days and we lean into spiritual practices that can draw us closer to Jesus. We allow for space and time to listen more attentively. We may be considered to eliminate things or habits in our lives that could keep us from a closer walk with Jesus. Or we take this time and add in practices that draw us closer to him. Traditionally, early Christ followers who were preparing for baptism took 40 days before Christ to examine themselves. They fasted, prayed, repented, considered the steps they were taking also to follow Christ because it could cost them their lives. Um, an author of, an, an, an anonymous author of this um, blog, it's called Blessed Is She, it's a um, blog post that Catholic women write, wrote that sometimes That time in Lent is a time to focus on what prevents us from the best possible relationship with God. This author writes about this phrase sitting with her and then considering what could be hindering her relationship with God. So this author chose to focus all her attention on that one thing during Lent. So too, as we begin and and continue to um, keep in step together during our time in Lent with each other, that we focus on the themes that keep us from deeper relationship with Jesus. And the flip side of those things, what can draw us closer to Jesus? The theme that we have of leaning into Lent will be to help us purposely keep leaning in, pressing into maybe things we may avoid or not necessarily want to address as well. And so I just wanna encourage you as we come to God's word this morning that we think about the things that maybe cause us discomfort as we seek a closer walk with Jesus. And today, as we look at our first slide today, um, it is forgiveness and resentment and the story of uh, the prodigal son or the lost son. Um, You know, as I was gonna encourage you to, the themes that we um, chose for Lent come from this red book or maroon book. I think I'm gonna go maroon because it has some Skyuma in it. Um, But I just wanna encourage you, if you haven't taken a book um, this is what we are journeying through in Lent, and the beautiful heading of this week, and it just, it just catches me, I don't know, this is, I think one of those stories that always has sat with me, but it's, it's for Sunday in Lent, and it's the God who seeks. And the invocation for this week is, O God, whose love is forever seeking communion with us. Help us not to hide from you in this appointed encounter, but to present ourselves open-faced before you. Through Jesus Christ, amen. And so we come to this, this uh, set of stories that Luke tells us, and there's three parables that shows that God desperately cares about the lost. If you've ever lost anything of value, search frantically and then found it, you will remember your joy when you found that thing. And you, when you think about what Jesus is saying about the, the significance of heaven, the significance of restoration, the significance of forgiveness, finding your lost watch or you know, maybe your lost ticket to whatever concert it was, that all pales in, signif- in, in significance when you think of the joy of heaven. Um, I've, I found this story and I thought it was really, really cute. Um, 
So many of us, we have no idea what God looks like. And there's a story that Nikki Gumbel tells about um, a teacher who's looking at a little girl um, coloring a picture. And she asks the little girl, what are you drawing? And she goes, God. And the teacher sits there for a second and the teacher says, well, not too many people know what God looks like. How do you know what God looks like? And the little girl just colors and pauses and said, well, in a few minutes when I'm done, you'll find out. Thank you, Joe. I thought that was funny too. But you think about how this story gives us such a beautiful picture of who God is. God is the one who is um, always seeking after us. God is the one who is always waiting for us to return. God is the one who is throwing his arms open, celebrating, restoring us when we come back to him. And that is who God is. And so we have this beautiful picture from the story in Luke. Um, Just a few preface things as you think about context. If you want to grab your Bibles or your Bible apps. There's some important things to note in in Luke's recounting of these parables. And and Jesus told parables and it was there was a there was a hidden truth within a story. And so it's the important thing that we look for what is the truth the main thing within the story. And Jesus always told stories about things that were real life. So the first thing he talks about is the parable of the lost sheep. He talks about, um, you know, there's a guy, he's a shepherd, and he has 100 sheep and loses one of them. And he goes after that one and leaves the 99. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Remember this word joy as we talk today. Then the next parable in Luke 15, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends, neighbors together, says, Rejoice with me, I found my last coin. In the same way, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we've all lost money before. We've all lost something. I remember I found 20 bucks in my pocket one time that I had forgotten. This is when... Dan and I were first married, and I don't know, we had like no money at this point, and, and I was just so happy that I'd found that $20 because it got some groceries that week. I was so delighted, and you think of how when we put it in the big scheme of how God feels about us when we come back to him, or is how we can be together when people come to him, that's that joy. Then he tells the parable of the lost son. But this, this parable is different, and if you notice the difference, it's because it's the man with the two sons, and so this parable is really about the man. It's not about the two sons necessarily, it's about the man, and so that's the important thing that we sit with in this context of the story. Um, I think about this story because the context is on God, and it's really important to think about, too, that these three parables that Luke tells show that God desperately cares about the lost. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. If you've ever lost anything of value, search frantically, you remember your joy when you find it. And in the story of the lost sheep, it shows there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescue life than over 99 good people who don't need that rescue. The story of the lost coin shows the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. And then in probably the greatest short story Jesus ever told, he gives the astonishing revelation of what God is like. He is like a loving father. 
The younger son requests his inheritance while the father's still alive and in good health. And it's important that we think about the, the, the startling request that this is. But we find this act of extraordinary love throughout the story about God the Father. So I just want you to think about a few things as we come to this. Um, and the next slide is contextual importance. First of all, if, if you think about the fact of uh, you know, the term of inheritance, I would never have the guts to ask when my parents, listen, I know you're not dead yet, but I like all your stuff right now. It's pretty much what this is. And so you think of, of the, the contextual importance of this, of shame, honor, and family. In ancient and Middle Eastern culture, this is probably one of the worst of the worst stories because the, the son sins against his, his family. He sins against his father. It's important to note, and, and I'm going to take some notes from um, one of my favorite theologians, who's also a covenant pastor, um, Klein Snodgrass, who was one of my favorite professors in seminary and just a man who loves Jesus and writes so so wonderfully. And, and I've got this awesome book, if you ever want to borrow it. It's about the parables. It's pretty much Klein's life work. Um, but he writes about this story. He calls it the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Two lost sons. It's really important to note that um, the text has a focus on God as father or Israel as the wayward son who acts as such in reconciliation just like in Jacob and Esau or Pharaoh's honoring of Joseph. And there's a lot of connections to those, um, those stories. So it's important that we keep that backdrop of Jesus was telling this story to the Pharisees and to the religious people. And, and it was no accident that he, he used the, the terms that he did and the comparisons he did. Um, a lot of scholars think that um, in the contextual understanding of it that the, the two sons were, could have been Israel and could have been the Gentiles and it's God the Father. It could have been the two kingdoms. It's also important we come to this whole um, shocking request that the son gives. It's, it's no accident that Klein writes that it literally means that the son, when he asked his father for his inheritance, he asked for his life. And he divided to them the life, ton bayon, which means your life. And, and it means for these were resources that the father had for maintaining his own life, especially in his own age. And the boy may not have literally wished his father dead, but his actions show that he really did not care for his father or desire to have a relationship with him. He wanted his father's money, not the father. Even with the division of goods, the younger son still would have had the responsibility to help care for his father, a responsibility he ignores by leaving. And that's such a shocking request. You just think about like in a family of, of what a shameful act that was. But I remember in seminary, I was in a group with other pastors, and one of the pastors was a missionary in China. And we had you know, rigorous debate about this because he said, if I told this story in context to my Chinese church, this would blow up all over the place because in, in that culture, the highest form of dishonor would be dishonoring your family, dishonoring your parents. I think about um, this man that I met. He was a teacher in Forest Lake. He was coming um, to teach at the Chinese Immersion School, and we were talking about what our favorite verses were, and this man named Michael um, had become a Christian in China, and then he came here to America to teach, and he said, my favorite verse is, you shall honor your father and your mother, and I was like, huh, I'm 
never heard anybody tell me that was their favorite verse. And he went on to talk about the deep love and respect that he had for his parents. And then he said, and I love and respect my parents so much that I have not even told them I'm a Christian. And I was like, okay, wait, I'm so confused. Like, Jesus has changed your life. How can you keep this from them? He said, because it would bring so much shame and dishonor on my family if they knew or their friends knew that I was a Christian. And so I love them so much that I want to keep this from them because I want to honor them. Because he was thinking about the bigger implications for, I know so many of you were like giving me this look like that makes no sense at all. But for him, his way of loving God was honoring his father and mother. And he knew that that could potentially bring them to harm in their community where they live because it's against the law to be a Christian. Anybody you knew that was a Christian, you could be thrown in jail too. So he loved his parents so much that he didn't even want to shame or dishonor them by telling them that he was a follower of Christ. That just blew me away. I I mean, I I struggled with that a lot because I'm like, for me, it's like this last coin or the last sheep of like, you found Christ. There's so much rejoicing. But for him... He wanted to protect his parents and honor them so much because he was honoring God that he didn't tell them he was a follower of Christ because he he didn't know what the results for that would be for them. I don't know. I'm still sorting that one, and I've he told me like seven years ago when he was at our church. It's important to also note, too, when we come back to this prodigal's request, is his sin against heaven or against his father? And there's a lot of answers that are given. The request for his share of the possessions, his covetousness, his leaving, his squandering, his lifestyle, his neglect of his father. How about like his pretty much telling his brother, screw you, I don't care about you either. I'm leaving. I want to go do my own thing. Even from the Old Testament perspective, the prodigal would have been guilty of violating the command of honoring one's parents, which I just brought up. The quest itself may have may not have been a sin and in this, you know, author doubts the covetousness in view, but first century Jews and, and Greeks alike would have considered it just reprehensible and altogether unethical. It's interesting also to note that the elder brother, you know, think these stories really about two brothers, God is the focus, but the elder brother, he would have received two-thirds of the property, and the primary responsibility for the care of the parents would fall to him. And we can't assume that the younger one would have received one-third of the family land, but the language allows for reference that he was given a right to something. And the best estimate is he received up to two-ninths of the estimate. But he received a chunk of change anyway, and he leaves. N.T. Wright portrays that the exile and restoration of Israel is really this story in miniature. N.T. Wright thinks that the background of the parables is, um, is really a reference to resurrection, and there's metaphors to return, exile, but it also, this parable depicts God's reception of the repentant and the challenges of those who object. There's a number of variations and implications that exist with this approach. But it's really also Jesus saying, I'm all about people coming back to me. And that's why Jesus was criticized so much about eating with people that were outside of the kingdom of God, according to other people. You know, Jesus regularly ate with tax collectors and, and sinners, the people that were on the outside. And so the story is also about Jesus's calling for those who had been outside to come in. Um, I was going to, next slide up, I was going to ask, which person in the story do you resonate with the most? It's always important when we come to God's word, we also put ourselves in it. Do we resonate with the Father? Is that kind of what we're going through in life right now? We're waiting for someone to come back to us, or we're waiting for a, a relationship to be restored? Are we the older son? 
you know, the older son, I think about the posture, you know, the father is like waiting, watching, waiting, just constantly looking and being um, ready for return, expectant. Are you the older brother with your arms crossed, mad, resentful, ticked off, keeping a list of every single thing that's happened? Or do you feel like you might be the younger brother and you might have been the one to leave? As you sit with those questions, I just want you to maybe wonder a little bit of why. Why do you find yourselves in that spot? I think it's also really interesting to think about in the first two parables that we, that we just touched on a little bit before the last coin and the last sheep, in those two parables, the focus is on searching and the joy of celebration at finding. Both also compare the joy of finding with the joy accompanying of repentance. The third parable, however, develops the theme of joy and celebration even more, but contrasts the attitude of the father and that of the elder son. And I think that's the most important part of this story is this contrast mirrors the attitude of God toward repentant sinners and the attitudes of those who refuse to rejoice and instead disparage repentant sinners. It, it really comes to our heart condition as well. You know, we have, if we look at the story again in Luke 15, there's some important things to note. Sorry. We note in verse 13, after the son goes, his younger son gets all the money, he goes off to a distant country and squanders his wealth in wild living. You can just imagine what that was. After he spends everything, there's a severe famine in that whole country, and he begins to be in need. It's interesting. At this point, you know, I didn't quite catch this, but until as I read it, it he loses everything. There's a terrible famine, no food, sounds like it's bad. He probably went to Gentile country, and he begins to be in need. And instead of going home right away, he tries to figure it out on his own. So it says he went out, he hired himself to a citizen of the country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Now, for a Jewish person reading this story, that would have been almost as bad as leaving because, first of all, they didn't, um, they didn't associate with Gentiles. They had nothing to do with pigs. And here he is living with pigs and feeding pigs. So he still hadn't come to rock bottom yet, but somehow the pigs represent rock bottom. He longed to fill his stomach with pods, and the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. And there's this beautiful sentence in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. So, you know, this, this beautiful point of, I think that is when repentance began for him, is that part where he came to his senses. And I think the beautiful story um, for that is, is to know that that repentance, that act of coming back to himself, is the most beautiful turning point to that story, because it means that he came back to what he knew he needed to do and where he had come from and who he needed to come back to. Um, I was going to again quote Nicky Gumbel because he wrote this, this beautiful line. He said, turning to God is not an irrational act. Actually, when it says he came to his senses, it really means he came back to his right mind. He came to his senses and the son realized that he needed help. You know, if you think about the verses before that, 
he'd been in this country. He tries to figure things out on his own. He's like, well, maybe I'll go like, work, work for the pig farmer. So he still hadn't come to his senses at that point. He swallows his pride, goes back to his father, and he knew that he needed to go home. He was prepared to admit his sin. He was prepared to make things right. So we have this, he's, he's kind of rehearsing his story. I'm gonna say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. First of all, he's acknowledging, I've, I've screwed up and I've, I've totally offended God and I've, I've sinned against you. That's a beautiful model of repentance. And he, he also like lowers him so far to say, I'm not, even, I'm not even in a place where I should even be called your son. So maybe just treat me like one of your hired servants, but at least let me back in in some way. And he really leaves it up to the father's terms. So he gets up and goes to his father. In this beautiful point of the story where it says, but he's still a long way off and his father sees him and is filled with compassion for him. Runs to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, it, it says that this, um, this term kissed him means he kissed him over and over and over. It wasn't just like, oh, you're home. No, it was like, probably the biggest hug this kid had ever had. So we just think about the posture of God the Father in the story. He sees him, he's watching for him, he's anticipating him, and the son comes back. And the, and the father does this extraordinary, unexpected thing that again was shocking and offensive to the audience hearing. He doesn't say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna like give you some time. You're gonna be, it'd be like almost saying, you're gonna be in um, a contract of, for 30 days. We're gonna see how you behave for 30 days I might let you back into the house. You can maybe go sit, sleep out in the shed for you know, a month or so, and then we'll see how things go. That's not what God the Father does in this story, and it's how it's modeled. The Father says, quick, to the servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. He says, give him honor, give him cleanliness. Bring the fattened calf that was reserved for a, a huge party for honored guests. Kill it. Have a feast. Celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this huge party begins. And it's interesting as the juxtaposition of the story is the older brother, he's in the field. He hears, hears the party going on. He's confused. And he finds out your brother's come back. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in. He pouts. His father goes out and pleads with him. Just shows what a good father this is because he wants both of his sons restored. And he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I haven't disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate. But then the son of yours who screws everything up, squanders your money with prostitutes, come home, and, and you have a big party and celebrate? See, the brother is worried that he's celebrating the bad things that the son did, not about the fact that the son is back. And this beautiful explanation that the father gives just reminds him, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. He reminds him of his place. But he says, we have to celebrate and be glad because your brother was was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So I just want you to just sit with for a second, like, what bothers you about this story? Is there anything that kind of doesn't sit right with you? And again, go back to who are you in the story? 
I think Luke wanted to teach his readers about self-righteous attitudes. I think, again, about our, our own posture towards God the Father and against ourselves and other people. Um, I think some of the purposes in the parable, first of all, is that we think about the characteristics of the central figure and about God the Father being the, 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 the whole core of it. It's first of all that we have compassion, that God has compassion. Jesus' message and work was the unquestioning love of the Father who mirrors the attitude of God. And it's also how we return. The eagerness of the Father to recover and restore the erring son is very poignant. He's waiting. He's expecting that he's coming back. I think about people in your own life right now that maybe you're wondering, are they coming back? People that you are being expectant of if you find yourself in being like the, the Father. A second purpose of the parable is the invitation to celebrate and rejoice. And some would even say that joy is the primary concern of this parable. It's, it's the compassion of the Father, but it's really about joy. If God rejoices at the return of sinners, can us as God's people do less? The lost is found. This must be celebrated. We join in celebrating God's feasts. And what are you doing? I like how um, Klein Sagra says, God is giving a party, and are you going to come? The forgiveness enacted with Jesus' proclamation of Jubilee must be celebrated. And the third parable, the third purpose of it, is Jesus' defense of his association with sinners. If God accepts such people, whom we are included, can we also do the same? The parable has an incomplete ending, too, because we really don't know like what the brother does, the older brother does. Does he stay out or does he come in? You know, that Jesus kind of leaves them on a cliffhanger. And it really it tells us, too, that with the incomplete ending, it functions as an invitation for the hearers to take the same attitude toward sinners as the father does toward the prodigal. And that change of attitude carries it with a, a missional force so that one is motivated not only to accept sinners, to accept sinners but to go and find them. So how does that sit with you? First of all, I think that we have to think about, are we going to be like God, where we are not only expecting people to return, but are we also going and seeking and looking like the other two parables say? You know, how many people do you know in your life that are far from God? How many people do you know that don't know the joy of, of being with God the Father and having that wonderful, close, unbroken relationship with God? Who are you willing to go to? I think this, this um, story also pushes on people that have hurt us when if we find ourselves being like the elder brother, and I could definitely say that I have probably been more like the elder brother, especially to people in my own life. What is my posture towards them? What, is my, um, my, what are my beliefs about how far God is willing to go and how much I think I know about God's forgiveness and his ability to forgive and restore? And I think that's where you know, God very loving, lovingly pushed on me this week of how far do I think God is willing to go to love and to go after the people that I think are, are too far outside of his kingdom. Um, and I think also the other part of this is is there somebody in your life that you are like the older brother and you need to forgive? And I, I, brought, I have a worksheet for you. <laughs> Sound like school. Um, this, is, this is adapted from 
what I do in my work as a therapist. There's um, worksheets at the end of all the chairs and some pens. And it's important also to know the story of what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. You know, hopefully this worksheet also helps you think about um, what forgiveness is, and this pushes on us in the story. And God models this to us. Forgiveness is letting go of resentment, anger, and hostility towards someone who treated you unfairly, even though you are justified in having those feelings. Forgiveness is recognizing the wrongdoer as human and treating them decently despite what they did. We, we have this modeled to us in this story. Forgiveness is a chance to amend a relationship that was damaged if you choose to do so. Forgiveness is a mental shift or a change of heart that develops over time. And, and I think about this story in the, in the prodigal son, the last son, is we don't know like the full outcome in this story about you know, about the two brothers and what happened, but we also know that how God the Father modeled to them how things were to be, and so I expect that, that the brother followed suit. But it might have taken him some time. Forgiveness is a process that can start at any time. You can even forgive a person who is no longer in your life. Forgiveness is an opportunity to heal. Forgiveness can reduce symptoms of trauma, anger, anxiety, and depression, and it can also increase hope and self-esteem. And forgiveness is a personal decision that only you can make for yourself. No one can make you forgive another person. That's that beautiful part in the story that Jesus tells us is the father didn't force the older son to forgive him. He, he entreated him. He pleaded with him. He modeled to him how to do it. And that's also the beautiful part of that compassion and that joy in the story. And on the other flip side, forgiveness is not, and this is super important that we also, we also determine, it's not condoning, approving, or excusing what happened. And again, in this story, the father didn't, didn't condone or excuse or, or make, oh, your, your brother, he had a hard childhood. It was hard being in your shadow. He didn't say anything like that. Forgiveness is not forgetting how you were wronged or pretending like nothing happened. You can't sweep it under the rug. He acknowledged it in the story. Forgiveness is not an agreement to, con to continue a relationship as it was. After forgiving someone, you can choose to resume, modify, or end the relationship. Forgiveness is not simply saying, I forgive you without meaning it. You know, we can, we can give, I call it lip service. We can give lip service really, really well, but it has to come from our heart. And that's also modeled in the story, too, that, that the father entreats the son, but he doesn't force him. He doesn't say, oh, just go say you accept your brother and, and, and come back. None of that. And I think that's part of the cliffhanger that Jesus gives us. Forgiveness is not something you do for the other person. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is not getting even or getting revenge. Getting even might feel good in the moment, but unlike forgiveness, it does not resolve anger and resentment. And forgiveness is not something that can be forced. Just because you want to forgive doesn't mean that forgiveness has been achieved. Um, you know, there was somebody in my life that, that hurt me a while ago, and I had such a hard time forgiving them. It's like every time I thought of them, I thought about what they did to me. And I remember um, as I sat with God in prayer about it, he said to me, Carrie, how would you treat that someone if they were one of the people in your church? And, and that's where God had me on the ropes because I was like, oh, Lord, I'd love them. I would be really good to them. And so the, the word that he gave to me was, can you see that person through my eyes? Can you forgive that person through, through me? And that was where God did some restorative work. And so I, I pray that through this story, that maybe you think about your posture, your own heart, 
who's hurt you, maybe where do you have some resentment, maybe you're the other brother too and you've been running from God and you need to be the one to come to your senses and say, I have sinned against the Lord God and against someone else. And so on the back of our worksheet, um, I, got, I got this formula for, for repentance. Um, Dan and I have used this with our children. It comes from the National Center of Biblical Parenting. And it's four easy questions for ourselves, and it's also, you know, this is good for kiddos too. But the first question of, of repentance is to say, what did I do? Or if you're working with your kids and they've had a scuffle, what did you do? Why did I do it? It's owning it. Kind of like in the story, the, the son says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I've screwed up. And then the, the beautiful part where we work towards restoration is what do you want to do next time? What do I want to do the next time this happens or, or, I, or I realize I have an opportunity to, to sin or to hurt someone? What do I want to do next time? And then, then the restoration of that return comes back for complete repentance. How will I make this right? It's literally where you turn around and you go a different direction and you determine how can I, how can I make repair? And so in this story too, we don't know how the repair happens, but it first of all begins with forgiveness and relationship and then practice. Um, and just for you for this rest of this week, just verses for reassurance of forgiveness and repentance. You know, when we come to God's word and God's word fills our mind, that is where truth comes of what forgiveness and repentance is, and that is what can restore us and help us um, come back to him and come back to restored re- relationships with other people. Um, in Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east, as far as the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is the one who is faithful, and we come back to the story as God is the one who is waiting, seeking, and finding, and welcoming. And so as we come... Um, in prayer together at the very end, I just want you to just take a moment to just reflect on which person are you in the story and what do you need with, with God and from God today. And let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the center of the story. Thank you that you are the one who is always waiting for us, always seeking after us, and always rejoicing and throwing a party when we come to you and, and we repent and, and we say, Lord, we've sinned and we've screwed up and, and we need you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you never give posture of we have to prove it first or you're going you're gonna to give us time. Lord, thank you that you, you start right away. And Lord, we just pray that as we think about um, what we need to make right before you or maybe with another person, God, that you're so compassionate and you will always help us. Help us, Jesus, to be humble and to be aware of our own sin and our own need for you. Help us to be aware of the propensity that we have to, to wound and hurt another. And Lord, help us to be humble to make things right when we need to restore relationship with another person or to admit what we've done. God, you're so good and loving, and we thank you, Lord, that out of your love comes um, repentance and, and, um, and a beautiful new beginning. And so my friend, for my friends here today and for myself, Lord, I, we all need that new start, and we thank you, God, that you are the good Father who rejoices at our um, return. We love and praise you, Jesus. Amen.